0: Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to get to talk to you today about something that is not taxes um, and actually doing the social side of software social. Um, So today I am joined by Jesse J. Anderson, or as you probably know him better from the internet, ADHD Jesse. And I am thrilled to have him here today to chat about being an ADHD entrepreneur, uh, about writing books, about all of those things. So, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me
1: today. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me. It's great to uh, get to hang out.
0: It is. Um, And I got to be on, actually, on your show um, last year, though you weren't there. Um, (laughs) So we're now just realizing that I actually haven't seen you before, which is, I think, a very... Uh, common thing when you, you know, either talk to someone on Zoom or meet them at a conference and you're like, wait, I know you from Twitter. So I feel like I know you, but actually I don't know you. Oh, wait, this is so weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's like this weird, uh, I don't know, like disconnect where, yeah, it feels like I totally know this person really well. And then, yeah, like you said, like running into them at a conference or something and you're like, oh, I didn't know you're you're four inches shorter than I thought you were going to be or whatever <laughs> it is. Like there's a lot of those like differences of like, oh, we're meeting in real life for the first time, which I kind of assumed we already had because we talked already before or whatever it is. So yeah, it's fun.
0: <laughs> and happening so much lately, I feel like because I feel like a lot of us were online so much more during the height of the pandemic. And then... Now we're going back to doing in person things and conferences, and I'm having this experience um, more and more, and it's fun.
1: Totally, Um, totally.
0: (laughs) It's really fun. So, you know, on this show over the past couple of years, um, you know, I have been open about how I have ADHD, and I was diagnosed as a child, um, and actually have had, uh, you know, several guests on our show who have also talked about. Their ADHD and being entrepreneurs, um, you know, the episode I did with um, Marie Pollan a couple of years ago, that one comes to mind and how, you know, I think some of us are drawn to entrepreneurship because we have ADHD, right? We we are not people that we, we naturally just, we just don't color in the lines and, <laughs> you know, doing the corporate thing um, is just, it's just easier, I think, for us to have control over our own schedules and our own work and we can kind of make our work adapt to um the ways that are that are best for us to work and then some people take that to a whole another degree where their adhd actually really shapes their business um Mm. so thinking about you know your your friend and, and 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 um and co-host Marie you know she has talked about llama life and how she has ADHD and, and having a to-do list that was very very ADHD friendly and it's right. so fun like confetti pops up when you complete something and it's all about timers and keeping you on track so she has really channeled it into that and then Marie Paulin has talked about how notion mastery is very much about organizing her brain and and she helps other people do the same and like really turning it into Um, a superpower. And I think you are also one of those people. And I mean, your brand is ADHD, Jesse, and you are all about making people feel less alone in their ADHD, whether it is diagnosed or undiagnosed. And you um, actually kind of pulled that all together this year um, and wrote a book called Extra Focus, which is, I I believe it's, it's, it's like written for people who are diagnosed as adults. Is that right?
1: it's well so it's it's intended for i mean it's written specifically for people that are adults you don't have to necessarily be diagnosed it's kind of so it was written like when well i'll just say when i got diagnosed it like there was not very much information out there so i was just sort of like trying to find anything that would tell me what this thing was because it was so like life-changing for me to find out that oh I have this thing and it seems to explain so much of my life and so much of who I am and why my brain has always sort of seemed different and then I remember talking like reading stories on Reddit and things like that and then hearing other people talk about their experience with ADHD and it connecting so much and then going to my doctor not knowing that there was all this like stigma or whatever just like I was like excited cuz so I was like I found this thing that seems to explain it and you know go to my doctor and like talk to him about it and he's like oh eh, well and it was very negative and at one point he like pulls me over he's like hey come over here and look at this and shows me his laptop and like points to like his calendar app like he thinks he's solving my adhd by showing me how you can like plot out your day <laughs> in a calendar and i was like oh this guy doesn't <laughs> know anything about adhd this is not gonna work out at all right here. Um so very very nice guy, helped me with like other stuff. Like he was a great doctor, but you know, he probably attended like one seminar like ten years ago about ADHD, like one day and then doesn't remember anything about it. And so it was just like n- that was not a great start. And that was really there just wasn't very much information, especially like this was like seven years ago. Uh most of the information so how old were you? So I was thirty six uh when I got diagnosed and yeah and they're just All the information i could find was for kids and like not very applicable to you know surviving like what's it like to work in corporate and have adhd is like well there's not a lot of information on that here's some tips on like how to get your adhd kid to stop misbehaving but that was kind of like all the stuff that i could find and so really a big reason for writing the book was like to be like this is the book that the i wish my doctor had handed to me that first day of like this is how you get started and really understand what it means to have ADHD. Because I felt like like even, even after that, as I like years later, I would still discover new stuff and like, what, that's part of ADHD too? I had no idea that like, like I didn't know initially, like the time blindness thing, which is like really huge. Like the, just like the difficulty with perceiving time and like the memory issues that can come with ADHD. And a big one like uh, rejection sensitivity, I hadn't heard about that for years after my diagnosis. And then hearing about that for the first time was like, mind blowing. Like, that's another thing I had no idea was connected with this different kind of brain that I had, or, you know, however you kind of label that. So that's, that was really sort of the impetus, the goal with the book of like, this is that one, like that starting point, you know, that's why it's called like extra focus, the quick start guide to adult ADHD. Um, And it's also, it also came from, because I write about, you know, ADHD a lot online, I make like a lot of my posts are just sort of like jokes and maybe making fun of myself a little bit of what it's like living with ADHD. But I would have people reach out often that would say, hey, like enough of these are really connecting that I think I might have ADHD. What do I do now? Like, where do I go for resources next? And like, I didn't really have a great place to point them. I had like, you know, I'd recommend podcasts or things like that, but there wasn't like a good, like, well, here's how to get diagnosed because that story is just like a mess depending on where you live. It's like, so all over the place. And so that was like, the big reason for writing this book was to have that, this, here it is. This is that quick place to start with uh, learning about ADHD. And also here's a bunch of strategies because that once you learn you have ADHD, then it's like, cool, now what? Like, what do I do with this information? Um, yeah, and then that's been a whole. As you know, you know, writing your book like that's been a whole adventure, learning what it's like to self-publish a book and how to motivate myself to finish the book when I told everyone I was going to do it, and you know, losing motivation halfway through and kind of getting through that. Uh, that's been like kind of a whole big uh, adventure for the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many things you just said that I want to dive into. I want to actually start with a tweet you had the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, getting a proper ADHD diagnosis and medication is like someone took a list of ADHD symptoms and built a very specific obstacle course, um, <laughs> which is so true. And I think, you know, so you, you said you got diagnosed at, at 36. And I think as an adult, it requires, it seems to require so much advocacy. And the thing is, mm-hmm. I mean, to get a di- diagnosis, period. And Mm -hmm. um, as an adult, you're doing all that advocacy yourself as the ADHD person versus as a child. You know, many children have their parents and their teachers and their school counselors being those advocates for them who, uh, granted, it is still a very it is still a very difficult process and, and and long process for people to get a diagnosis um i have a friend who recently one of their children was recently diagnosed and that was a very long process for them and mm. they are a, a neurotypical parent like extremely type a and has the support of school counselors and teachers in this process right and it has still been difficult but then as an adult you're doing all of that yourself. You're the one navigating the doctors, the health insurance, dealing with doctors who think, no, this only this has to exhibit in children before the age of seven, which is a, like a very, very outdated mm-hmm. diagnosis that does not match the current diagnostic criteria. So there's a lot of stigma involved. It very much depends on the country and mm-hmm. um, it's a very, very difficult process. And I think, Anyone who has gone through that as an adult or is going through that, I think, really should give themselves a lot of credit for the work that they are putting into that. Totally. Um, and I, so your reason for for writing your book was the one I have been was so happy to be one of your early readers, and <laughs> because I was diagnosed as a child. And then have been open about it as an adult. I have had people come to me, especially it seems like really like this has changed in the last five years or so where people are now more open about this. Um, mm-hmm. They come to me and say, well, I've been diagnosed as an adult or I think I probably have this. Where do I go? And I had no idea where to send them.
1: Totally. Like,
0: yeah. I mean, you were diagnosed as an adult and you didn't know where to send people. I right. I, I had been open about this and kind of... and sort of people saw me as somebody, oh, maybe she knows, and I had no idea where to send people. Um, and so I am so I am grateful that your book exists because now this is something that I can recommend to people who who come to me um thinking they have ADHD or or have been recently diagnosed. So thank you for all of the work that you put into that. I, I I think you're you're really gonna help a lot of people and your uh, vulnerability and your, your willingness to be so, so vulnerable in public about your own <laughs> struggles is mm-hmm. it helps a lot of people probably more people than you realize and and I think that really goes for any of us that when we are intentionally vulnerable in public um, it it has tremendous knock on effects and and is beneficial for other people in ways that you probably don't even ever realize
1: Hmm. Thank you so much. That's so that's so kind of you to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like I've noticed some of that just being being open and being vulnerable really gives it, it seems to give people kind of permission to see something in themselves that maybe they're trying to hide or ignore or sort of bury because they're embarrassed of it. And then by just seeing me sort of make fun of myself in that way, it almost like it clears the air so it's like oh we can just talk freely about this weird way our brain works or whatever it is because we're kind of in we're in that together where and i totally get that like i, I there's so much uh shame involved i think with having adhd and kind of like all of like the neuro neurodivergencies, like autism and ocd like all of those i think there's a lot of shame involved in having that uh because there's so much stigma so you become like afraid to let people know that your brain, you know, works differently. Um, and then you're just like hearing, you know, there's like, it's not a study, but there's like this, uh, some doctor that estimated that uh, kids with ADHD hear like, I think it's like 20,000 more negative messages than their peers by the age of 10, uh, which sounds a lot, sounds like a lot. I was like, wow, oh, that sounds like maybe an overestimation. But then you like do the math and it, that, it kind of checks out. It's because I see it, even being aware of this, I see it, uh, my daughter has ADHD and I see us doing like, hurry up, come on, do the thing. Like, it's just, it's so hard to not do that. And so there's just like this constant feedback that happens for, you know, growing up with ADHD, particularly if you're not diagnosed, because then you don't even have that to sort of say like, well, I'm struggling because the ADHD It's just like, I don't know, I'm broken. And everyone is telling me that something is wrong and I'm not doing things right. And it's, it's so hard because you have like all the the weight on your shoulder from all of this and there's nowhere for that blame to go. So you just, you know, you kind of carry that weight yourself uh, which is really tough because like, I think so many people with ADHD, like our intentions are really pure. Like we're trying to do the right thing. Like I always felt like as a, as a kid, I felt like I was tr- I'm was, i trying to be a good good kid. Like I'm trying to do the right things. And for some reason, my actions aren't lining up with what my intentions are. And then because I don't know about ADHD or anything else, it just like everybody else, like, you know, authority figures like parents and teachers think that my intentions are bad. And that is just so like so hard. It's so hard to feel that growing up and just feel that blame of like them thinking I'm trying to be bad when I know that I'm not. Um, so I forget what the question is that uh, led to this, but, (laughs) but yeah, I think, um, a lot of what I'm trying to do kind of with the advocacy work that I do online and writing in my newsletter and in the book is really just sort of like give people permission to talk about that and hopefully find out about ADHD, because I know it was so, it was so impactful for me. I love just Knowing that I can be a little part of that story for other people to, you know, potentially like completely change their lives.
0: I want to dive into that a little bit. You mentioned this earlier, and and actually it came up in a conversation with some entrepreneur friends the other day. Rejection sensitive dysphoria is what you were just talking about. Comes of that experience of constantly being told that you are not good enough and not doing things right and even in very small ways as you said like hurry up you know why don't you have your shoes on yet come on like you know you you knew you needed to do this like why are you still doing that why are you doing that instead of doing what you're supposed to right all of those things you know tens of thousands of times build up and so rejection sensitive dysphoria to define it for a moment is extreme emotional sensitivity and pain triggered by the perception that a person has been rejected or criticized by important people in their life. Mm-hmm. may also be triggered by a sense of falling short, failing to meet their own high standards or others' expectations. Okay, setting a definition aside, how I see this come up for people who are entrepreneurs is customer support. Mm-hmm. And this is how it came up in a conversation the other day and whether that is both customer support and sales conversations. Mm-hmm. So for example, if a customer reaches out and they're saying, hey, like, you know, you've got a bug in your software, they might be saying it, hey, just wanted to let you know you got a bug in your software, like, love using it, Um, you know, thanks. Somebody with ADHD with rejection-sensitive dysphoria, which by the way, you can have rejection-sensitive dysphoria and not have ADHD, you can have ADHD and not have rejection-sensitive dysphoria, they might interpret that much, much more harshly and feel so drained by it in a way that someone without rejection sensitive dysphoria wouldn't, because it's oh my gosh, I've fallen short, I've failed, and and so it, and something that comes across as hey you have a bug is hey you have a bug like there is <laughs> something right. wrong and I am angry and you are you are messing up there is something wrong with your software there is something wrong with you right that's how it feels
2: totally but then yeah. there's
0: also kind of this other side of it too where um. People might get off a super positive sales call where someone is like, "Oh, I love this! It's called this. Do all this stuff I want to do. This is amazing! Oh, it'd be so amazing if you could do this too. Like that'd be so great." And somebody with rejection sensitive dysphoria might hear that as, "Okay." Shoot, like I need to live up to all of those expectations they have. Like, what if the software isn't good enough? What if I'm gonna fall short on that? And then there's this other stuff they want to do that it doesn't solve. Do I need to start working on that right now? I was working on other stuff because people said those things were wrong, and and then I have to make sure that these other things are working because those the things they wanted, but now they're saying there's something else they need it to do, and and I, it doesn't do that, and I don't know what I should do. And then people just like freeze. I mean, everybody probably just got really stressed out listening to me <laughs> say that, right?
1: Right. Because
0: it is really stressful. That's what's going through someone's head. And it's very, very common. And, And both to have this like just feeling and you might not even like realize that you're having an emotional reaction to it, but just feeling super drained after somebody says like there's something wrong or they just have a feature request or even feeling drained after someone says something is great. Right. Because there's also that. You know, that kind of feeling of, oh, well, if they actually knew what it was like, then they wouldn't think it was great. Like, there's always mm. this feeling that actually it's not okay. Actually, mm. it's not good enough. Actually, you are not good enough, right? Like, that's what that feeling is. When in reality, you are good enough. Mm-hmm. Your software is good enough. And maybe it's a right fit for this person. And maybe it's not. And that's okay. And that's how the world is. Not everything is going to be a fit. and it's And it's okay if there's somebody who's upset or it's it's okay if somebody had an expectation that wasn't met because you can't control other people. Like you you're not in their head. You can't control their expectations. That's not your responsibility. But so much people with rejection sensitive dysphoria or ADHD feel like other people's perceptions are their responsibility. Other people's mm. expectations are their responsibility to fulfill them. And I have seen this very draining for people but at worst also make them just stop working on what they were building because that feeling is so uncomfortable and so hard to deal with and it's really tough to create something and then feel like people um don't like it or don't appreciate it or you get this negative feeling from it it's it's very very common and and um you know Brene Brown I think she says how the only feeling worse than feeling alone is shame. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about how all of these things lead to shame. And especially, you know, I think we've kind of, we're kind of seeing, people have talked about how like we're seeing less build in public stuff on Twitter, right? And that's maybe because many people have stopped using Twitter as much or the economic situation or what it is. Mm -hmm. But if you're seeing other people doing really well online and then you see, oh, I'm alone, like I'm the only one who's getting negative support tickets. I'm the only one who feels like what they've built isn't good enough, what they've created isn't good enough. Then you go from feeling alone to feeling ashamed of it. And and I think for those of us who have ADHD or think we have ADHD, it is such an important thing to be aware of that we are not alone in that feeling.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there's that I mean the that rejection sensor dysphoria is so huge. I mean, I think it's it, it's really hard to like for me I find it really hard to describe to people just how intense it is. Like it can really be like just almost like a catastrophic feeling uh triggered for some from something that's really like Maybe when I look at it later, I can see like, oh, that wasn't a big deal or whatever, like, or they didn't mean it as intensely as I felt it. But in that moment, it feels like betrayal or something or like just like stabbed to the soul. Um, It's so intense. And yeah, there's so like with entrepreneurs in general, like there's been studies that show like ADHD, there's a much higher prevalence of ADHD within entrepreneurs, which makes a lot of sense because we're like, wow, the corporate life or whatever, like the structure of a lot of workplaces doesn't work really well. And also because I have ADHD, I'm having all these great ideas. And so a lot of times it leads us to becoming kind of entrepreneurs or working for ourselves because then we can shape that world around our own needs, but yeah, the rejection part is so tough because we're going to run into that. Like, to have a business, you have to have customers, and those customer interactions oftentimes can trigger um, that rejection. And it, because that kind of that sensitivity to reje- rejection, a lot of people with ADHD end up really becoming uh, perfectionists. Like, we're afraid to. Uh, which can be really problematic if you're doing like uh, some sort like a software product or something, because it's like you can be afraid to like launch that new feature until you've got every you're like, oh, these are going to be stretch goals. But then you're like, but I can't launch without doing those stretch goals because then it's not perfect. And so you get stuck in this like this pattern of like, well, I've been working on this now. It's been too long. And I'm like almost embarrassed to release what it is right now because I've been working on it so long, but it's still not to that level that I want it to be. And so that's definitely this kind of um, conundrum. I mean, I will say like in the uh, my, my podcast um, with Marie, we talk, we've talked about that somewhat and really just how a lot of time, um, I know this is like kind of tangent a little bit, but like a lot of time I find in the past, I really wanted to get all those stretch goals when I had that kind of feature. But when I've released early, I've found that, those stretch goals are so much less important than I thought they were going to be. Um, so this is like just in software in general, I find that like if I like it's the whole idea of like the MVP, like launching early, launch early often. Um, and a lot of the, yeah, I just find that like those things that feel really, really, really important until the day I launch. And then it's like, I don't know. I don't really want to work on that anymore. I don't think that's that important. I want to jump on the new, <laughs> the new feature or whatever it is. Um, and maybe, I'm not totally sure why that's the case, but that's, I don't know if you've seen that too, but that's something that very consistently I find that. And for a long time, it just meant I never launched the feature and because of, um, I at my day job, I've been forced to launch some of those features that's sort of become a recurring theme that I've noticed is those those stretch goals that feel like musts, must. And then we launch without it and it's like, ah, that's fine, that's fine, let's move on. <laughs> I, I don't know, if oh, you experienced sure. that as well? Yeah.
0: Oh, so actually, uh, about see, about a month ago at Microconf, um, I met in person for the first time my friend Benedict, who people may know from the Slow and Steady podcast or his uh, company he co-founded, Userlist. Um, And he gave me a sticker um, that says "Better done than perfect," and (laughs) like I I put that on a binder. Like it's like a new (laughs) motto now. Um, Yes, I think absolutely. I think, and then again, all of that. That feeling, all like, you know, feeds into shame, right? Of of this isn't done yet, and it should be done by now. And oh, but I've been working on it for so long, so people think it should be better than it is by now. And Mm -hmm. and you know, something about that you mentioned earlier, how you started writing your book because you had all of this positive feedback from people on the work you had already done, saying hey, I want more of this. Like, where do I go after this? Like, I love your tweets. You make me feel so much better about this, but what do I do now, right? You had a lot of momentum going into it. And then you started writing. And then you entered um, what is known in the SaaS world as the trough of sorrow, (laughs) where you said you stopped writing and you lost momentum. Mm -hmm. And then you got it back again. And so I want to pull us back to that time. You know, again, if this were a, highly produced professional podcast, this is when the harp music is playing. (laughs) And take us back to that moment. Tell me about when you first noticed that you were losing momentum on writing the book.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really sudden. So this was, I think a little over two years ago in August was when I first announced that I was gonna start working on the book. And I had already been working on it a little bit to see like, is this going to, can I do this? And I was like, yeah, this feels great. I can totally do this. And then I announced it and it was going great. And I was like, just like working on it all the time. I was like, you know, it was that new novel thing. So I was excited to work on it. Anytime I had like, you know, like weeknights, I would like finish finish work, do dinner, kids go down to bed. And I'm like, boom, time to write. Uh, weekends, I'd like, I'm going to go off to the coffee shop for a few for a few hours and I'm going to write the whole time. And I was like jazz and it was super exciting and then I started getting other different like exciting ideas of things to work on um and so then I was kind of like splitting the time and I honestly I didn't even notice I didn't notice that it was becoming less and less and less uh what I noticed was all of a sudden I was like when's the last time I looked at the book it's been like three or four months like it had been months that I hadn't touched I hadn't even opened the file That, you know, whatever app I was using at the time, I hadn't even opened the file to, like, look at any of my writing in months. And that, I mean, that was... Uh, it was a real like wake up call for me because like, I mean, one, there's a, immediately shame, like, Oh no, is this going to be another one of those things that I don't, that I tell people about. And then I don't finish because there's been a lot of those in my life. Cause I get really excited about new ideas and I tell everybody about them and then I don't, don't always follow through. So that was like terrifying finding out that like, just realizing I hadn't touched it in so long. Cause I was like, because of the, like the difficulty with time, like not perceiving time, it felt like oh I'd probably last worked on it like a week or two ago and that just like progressed until it it had been months and that was actually when I realized that it was it was like okay I gotta fix this how am I gonna fix this that was when I first announced that I was gonna do beta reading which I had kind of known that it was it was sort of a plan to eventually do that but that was when I announced it because I knew like that's gonna give me the urgency that's gonna motivate me like I'm gonna basically i announced it on my newsletter and then told told everyone like hey you can sign up to be a beta reader and i'm gonna let like the release the first version on this date and then uh as soon as i did that it was like i can't show them what i have right now like what i have right now is an embarrassment so now i have you know whatever it was like two weeks to work on it as much as i can to get it up to a point where I wasn't like embarrassed, like literally embarrassed to uh, actually show it to people. And I'm trying to remember where you, you, I think you were right on that very first uh, first group. So you saw the very, very early version of it. And I do remember you leaving me really, really great feedback, which was uh, super helpful. But yeah, that was that was kind of that first time where I was like, okay, if I'm gonna finish this, I need to do something that's going to like introduce urgency. And so beta reading was a big factor in that. Like basically you can look back and every time I did like a new beta version, that's because like a few weeks before I was hitting that, uh, what was it the trough of, uh, despair or <laughs> the trough of sorrow, trough of sorrow. Yeah. Like it was me realizing I was entering that again. I was like, okay, I gotta do something to ramp up the energy. Um, and so that was kind of one of the primary ways I was able to finish the book by introducing kind of these little pockets of, of urgency whenever sort of that en- energy started to dwindle. And then the other thing I did was that I had I'd hired an editor and I asked if he could do deadlines and he's like I'll do you one better basically. He's like I could give you pretend deadlines, but we both know that you're just going to like push those back. So I'll give you a real deadline and say like you need to give it to me by this date because I have other clients and if you don't get it to me by this date that means I won't be able to look at it for like two and a half months or whatever it was. And so he was able to, he basically gave me deadlines right up against when he knew he wasn't gonna be able to look at it for a while. So that became a real deadline. I was like, I have to get it in there, otherwise it's gonna cost me like three months for whenever my eventual launch date is. So those are kind of the two big pieces that allowed me to uh, finish the book. My editor giving me those deadlines that were true real deadlines and the uh, beta reading.
0: Interesting. And so listeners who may have been paying close attention to that exchange there and also have read my book may realize that I asked Jesse a question that comes from the jobs to be done world, which is when someone is going through a journey and trying to accomplish a job or accomplish a goal, asking them about a pivotal moment in time when they realized something wasn't working and having them take you back to that moment. And then so if we look at that process, then I heard you talk about how you it sounds like, you know, the book drop off your radar. And I feel like this relates to a term that we in the ADHD world have sort of adapted from child psychologists called object permanence. Mm. And it has a different meaning when you're talking about babies. But basically how we use it is that if something isn't like physically in front of you, you're going to forget about it and this is very very common for people with adhd and why you might see people with post-its all over their laptop or all over you know their monitor or or, or whatever it is leaving notes for themselves <laughs> all over the place leaving reminders on their phone right because if you don't have that physical sense of something physically sitting at you sorry, looking at you sitting in front of you then you'll forget about it and so but then you were able to solve that through a couple of different ways, right? So you brought in mm-hmm. an editor who imposed hard external deadlines that you knew were real and that you couldn't change. You also started getting feedback, right? And even in small ways. And I, and for me, when I was writing my book, like that feedback is what kept me going the whole time. And I mean, quite frankly, I have been procrastinating on writing an expanded edition of the book, I already know what those chapters are gonna be, but I, I think the reason I'm procrastinating on it is because I'm not getting any feedback on it. It's all just living mm-hmm. in my head, right? And it's, just, so, but when you start getting that feedback, I think for, for us with with ADHD, it's so important to, you know, hack our brains and <laughs> where we have very unpredictable release of dopamine in our brains, right? Doing something that actually predictively gives you the dopamine. Feedback mm. from people, positive, encouraging feedback, right? Not necessarily like, hey, this is great, but like, I, I tried to make a lot of my feedback intentionally very, like, I love where you're going with this. I'd love to see it go here next, too, mm. rather than something that is, this isn't hitting, like, do this instead, right? Those are basically saying <laughs> the same thing and, you know, attempting to get to the same outcome, but very, very different. One of those is positive, one of those leads to dopamine, the other one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing all like you can see all of those pieces of, it, of of very common parts of the ADHD experience that I think people don't realize are there. They're like those small things and, and you talk about them in your book of it's not just, you know, the eight year old boy running around on the playground and running around in the classroom when he should be sitting in his chair or, you know, a 10 year old girl who is overly chatty and involved in every single sport she can get her hands on me um it's like there's really like small things of like just losing focus on something that you were excited about because it wasn't literally in front of you and then also i think a sort of one of the the things about us with with adhd that's kind of you know we 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 sometimes need that stress in order to get us to get something done and I think for me, this is something I have been thinking a lot about the past year of how cortisol is our stress hormone. And for those of us with ADHD, especially us of the sort of, you know, high achieving driven type, we rely on very high cortisol to make us do things. Mm -hmm. Um, We rely on high stress to get us to do things. And that's unhealthy for us. That's not good for our bodies. And... And I think that's a big reason actually why I had to take a break from podcasting, take a break from writing, take a break from, you know, I only did one talk this year. Like I had to really pull down that stress level because I realized I was relying on a high stress level to get things done. And, you know, now I'm in my 30s and, and, you know, Starting to see the impacts of things I did <laughs> in the first three decades, right? And um, yeah, totally. And so you can see those pieces just kind of from that critical moment that you had of of losing your focus, how you how you got it back.
1: I think there's a lot of strategies that people with ADHD learn because it's like the only way we can seem to get things done, uh, especially like growing up when you don't know, mm-hmm. like you don't, you, like you said, you kind of don't know the consequences of like using stress as a motivational tool or whatever. Um, or I mean, the
0: consequences if you don't use it, right, is that you don't do well in school, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, and I think you know, and 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 I was never medicated as a child either, and so I was diagnosed at a time when there's a lot of backlash against mm. they were seen as kind of too many kids were put on ritalin in the 90s and so i was diagnosed in i don't know 2000 2001 or so and so there's a lot of backlash at that time and this is before sort of newer medications like Vivance and adderall and uh you know uh, the whole you know bunch of other ones yeah um that 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 for many people are gentler or a better fit for their body chemistry than than ritalin though many people use ritalin Mm-hmm.
1: yeah and there's also like there's the time time released ones is, and stuff like that as right. well right and yeah. so
0: and so when I was diagnosed there's just a lot of a lot of backlash and so I only learned behavioral strategies but I didn't learn I think all of the stuff about how our brains are different and how we can you know how we can use that right and but also some some of these negative effects of doing that because i think for me certainly it was how do we force your brain into getting things done at school and still achieving stuff in school like that was the important thing how do we make sure that you right despite the fact of this adhd you can do well in school get a job be a functioning adult it was and i think that's what i i also love about what you're doing is that there is this element of celebrating it which mm. And, and 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 that shame that you were removing from having adhd and that building community around it taking people out of their aloneness is so important because you know for me it was something that i accepted within myself but it was it was a defect like and i didn't necessarily like mm-hmm. like my friends i think i think they knew i had adhd or all many of them quite frankly have adhd you know there's this <laughs> actually, there's this tweet i love i don't know if you've seen it that says um neurodivergent what is it does it neurodivergent people flock together like bands of poorly emotionally regulated wolves so if all of your friends have adhd then i have news for you <laughs> um, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> um but removing that element of uh, of shame and also being like hey like this can be this can also be an amazing thing right it's mm. not just about having to hack your brain and get it to do all these things and and but like once you know like all right like I've got this object permanence issue. Like if this book isn't sitting on my to-do list, if I don't have like the cover of it printed out sitting on my book, I'm just going to just absentmindedly forget about it without meaning to, or I need to do something that's going to get me some dopamine going in my brain. How can I do that? Right. I can Mm -hmm. get feedback from somebody who supports me. I can exercise. I can do whatever like that is. Right. Um, I can bring someone in externally. Who's going to give me a deadline. Who's going to make me accountable in a way that I know is a real deadline. But also celebrating it, right? Turning that, you've turned it into a business. You've turned it into something that helps other people. Um, and, And I think that's a message, especially that, I think especially kids don't get when they get diagnosed that ADHD is not just something that makes you different. It's not just something that makes you not what your teachers want you to be or what you think your parents expect you to be it's not something that's holding you back it can be something that you if you let that blossom you can you can turn it into something else and it can be very very positive for you you can have lots of ideas about things and 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 get very very passionate um about things it can be a positive
1: yeah it, do- absolutely. it doesn't have
0: to be something you're alone in. it doesn't have to be something to be ashamed about
1: right yeah so like as as a parent i've got i've got three kids and two of them are officially diagnosed and the third one like he he definitely has it too. <laughs> He's not officially diagnosed, but we're we're pretty pretty there sure there is a
0: strong genetic component. Very so yes, yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. So my wife is uh, doesn't have ADHD though. She's uh, neurotypical, which is great because she that that's definitely an asset in a house full of uh, a lot of people with it. with ADHD. She's really good at kind of organizing things and uh, kind of uh, making sure making sure the family runs in a way she's, she's amazing at that. Uh, but what I was going to say, like, I, I feel really thankful that I'm in a place that I can inform, um, about ADHD. And like you're saying, like celebrating the positiveness of it with uh, my kids. So particularly uh, my daughter, she's the oldest. Um, and she just recently turned 13 and we talk about our different kinds of brains a lot because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of things at school that are designed around neurotypical kids. Like it's designed to work for people that have a neurotypical brain. And so there's a lot of things that aren't super compatible with the way her brain works. And so she runs into some difficulties. And what's great is I ran into those same difficulties. And so like, she's late to things a lot, just the same way that I was as a kid. There was like, I didn't know about ADHD. I didn't know there was a reason. Like I didn't know that I was perceiving time differently. I just knew that I could not make it to school on time ever. I was tardy almost every single day for like all of junior high. And she pretty quickly was dealing with that as well. And, but I was able to talk with her about like, you know, like being a few minutes late shouldn't matter because like, who cares, but the system is built in a certain way. And so we have to figure out how we can navigate that. And then we can celebrate like the amazing things that we can do. Like she is so creative and artistic. Um, she's so good at like, uh, she loves animals. So she's able to just like see an animal and then like capture. It's something that like, I don't have this skill, but she, she'll be able to draw like four or five lines on a paper. And you're like, wow, you captured the essence of that animal in this tiny little illustration with like barely any lines. But it's, there's But you look at it and you're like, that is a chipmunk it's not it's not a squirrel it's not like some other like i can see the chipmunk in that and there's something like it's uh really kind of magical seeing that in her and being able to sort of embrace how her brain is different in different ways and just sort of celebrate that there's there's actually a book that i i think i hate the title because it's really cheesy um but there's a book called super parenting for add um, and it's an older book, but what I love about that book is it's so much about the positive message of re- raising people, like raising kids with ADHD. It's so much about, like, it's not like, here's how to fix your kid or here's how to get them to do homework. Like, that's not it at all. It's all about celebrating what the kids are good at, like celebrating their strengths, because that is what's motivating. To people with ADHD like hearing like when someone says like oh man you are so good at this thing like all I want to do now is be even better at that thing I'm like yeah like that is like rocket fuel uh to me and it's the same with like the kids when I tell them how like when I celebrate like some drawing that my daughter does she's like I want to do even more of that I want to dive into that because I feel so uh, so loved and so seen and celebrated in that thing. And that feels so much better than like like the criticism because it's like they're already hearing a million criticisms about so many, so many different things. Like hearing that positive, that's the thing that's going to like stick out. And so I, I I love that I have the opportunity. And like my parents did the best they did. they could, but they didn't know about ADHD. and so they didn't know about different ways to sort of like celebrate. They were just seeing, the difficulties I was having at school and like the notes from the teacher that said, uh, you know, he's not doing his homework and he's really messy and he's late all the time and doesn't hand in assignments and whatever it was. And so that was like the message that was being heard back then. And I feel like really privileged to be able to filter that message for my daughter and be able to say, like, if we get a report card that says a thing like that, be able to say like, I got those messages too. And sometimes teachers just don't understand you. And th- like, that's okay. We we learn how to work with that. But I want to tell you the things that you have done really well and the things, you know, celebrating them again. Um, so, yeah, it's such a, I think that celebration is so important in the world of ADHD. And that's hopefully what I'm, part of what I'm doing with uh, the work that I'm doing is helping people see that, like it's different and it can make things difficult because the, the because of what society is and how things run but there's so many positives to having ADHD and I think we the work that we do um is really important to kind of the human race like a, a lot of what people with ADHD you know bring to the table is really important like um I'm going maybe going off on a rant here a little bit but like there's so many like like you I see a lot of different industries where there's kind of pockets of people with ADHD. For example, like comedians. I don't know if there's any comedian that doesn't have ADHD because it seems to be so prevalent there. And there's a lot of like areas of that where I think that like something about the ADHD brain really brings this unique flavor to life. And I think that that is really important. Um, And so I love being able to be in a place where I can celebrate that with with people online and just being vulnerable and open with that stuff or when it's just like celebrating the little things that my kids do that i think is amazing and unique
0: i cannot think of a better way for us to close this conversation than by talking about celebrating the good parts of adhd and whether that is as someone who is diagnosed as an adult or someone who suspects their kids might have ADHD or is, you know, has kids with ADHD um, or even has friends or a spouse who or a family member who has ADHD. Super parenting um, for ADHD um, for the parents out there. And extra focus, the quick start guide to adult ADHD for all of the many, many adults out there who are getting diagnosed. Um, I mean, it's just, it's incredible the number of people I have seen only in the last five years are talking about how they are getting diagnosed as adults, which is something that wasn't even really possible 20 years ago. But two excellent book recommendations. Um, I imagine... Both are available as audiobooks. Is yours an audiobook?
1: Mine is not an audiobook book yet, but I it's know that that's audiobook. important. I know it's important, so it's like it's on my list. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll start like recording that early next year, um, and get that out. So currently not available as an audiobook, but you can get the ebook or paperback anywhere books are sold. Um, you know Amazon obviously, but anywhere else, uh, pretty much you can get it. And there you can also just go to extrafocusbook.com. And that has a link to all the places, plus some information to be able to get like the uh, uh, bonuses and stuff like that.
0: Amazing. Um, well, if it does become an audiobook, I'm sure we, we will tell you about it. Um, <laughs> there's probably some AI that'll read it to you as a bedtime story. I hear from a lot of other people with ADHD that they don't read books and they only listen to audiobooks, which I find so interesting. And maybe I'm an unusual ADHD or who just like books are, you know, one of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> And so I don't have a problem reading a book, but a lot of people read through audiobooks. But so if that happens, you will certainly know I'm going to link to both of these books in the show notes here. Thank you, Jesse, so much um, for coming on today. And thank
2: you, everyone, for listening. I'll see you on the Internet. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI. The daringly handsome Kevin Griffin and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality. Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Bright Bits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from the Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from Userlist, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry. Nate Ritter of RoomSteals Anna Mast of Subscribesense Jeff Roberts from Outsetta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics Matthew from Appointment Reminder Andrew Culver at Bullet Train John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems Richard from Stunning Josh, the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder Ben from ConsentKit John from Credo and Editor Ninja Cam Sloan Michael Copper of Nucy Proposals Chris from URL Box Callie of Toslet Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabells, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender. Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Conbini, Arvid Kahl, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.